This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi, I'm Tanya, your host for Feel Better. Before I introduce my next guest, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and listening to our program. I got the numbers from Plains, and you were more than 200 to download the podcast in its first month. I feel very grateful and blessed. But back to our guest. Today, I welcome Richard Pitts. He's a learning assistant, high school teacher at Aotafiti and Limited Discovery. Welcome, Richard. Hi. You teach English and media studies, but mostly you're passionate about board games and you've transmitted your bugs to my daughter. Ever <laughs> since, our budget for games has gone through the roof. I'm not sure I'm always grateful sorry. about that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but not sorry. It's a, good, it's a wise decision, a wise financial decision, I think. What these things have in common, you see, is that kids will take a chance. You know, if they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, they have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way. We stigmatize mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this, he said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Um, we've just listened to the late Ted Robinson's TED Talk, Do Schools cre Kill Creativity? Any comments? Are we indeed afraid to be wrong as we grow older? Hmm. Uh, Short, short answer, some schools do. Uh, the reason I'm working in my current school, and I'll get into that soon, is, is because it allows kids and staff to be to be creative. Um, but mainstream schools, yes. <laughs> I think I agree wholeheartedly with many of the ideas that Ken Robinson put forward in his, in his TED Talk, which has gained heaps of traction over the last 15 years. It's, it's almost like someone watched that talk and created Altafidi as a response, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though Altafidi got uh, was was formed a few years before that. Um, but yeah, the um, this that, that sort of conveyor belt notion of, of education, where everyone pops on the conveyor belt at age five, and then and then pops off at age sixteen, all, all having or seventeen, all having achieved the same the same sort of outcomes, is is just wrong, and. What you what you quickly realise as a as a teacher, as soon as you spend five minutes in a classroom, is that kids aren't kids aren't the same. They don't learn in the same way. They need a variety of different uh, a variety of different ways that they can be exposed to learning. And I'm I'm primarily uh, I'd call myself like an orator and an orator, and uh, I, I speak to my students. I don't give them a whole raft of um, written materials I don't give them a whole bunch of tactile experiences but uh, but it's class discussions and that works for heaps of kids but it really doesn't work for a lot of other ones um, because they they need to learn in their own particular way they need to and they need to find the way in which learning um, resonates with them uh, 
in my previous in my, in my previous schools, I've taught a number number in, in Australia and New Zealand, but in Denmark as well. Um, it is very much geared towards one type of student will be will be academically successful, and they're, they're the ones who come from a literate <laughs> literate background where the parents are readers, they're capable at writing. And as soon as you as soon as you get kids who are not so strong in those areas, they're basically not going to succeed at the highest level in, in most educational systems. Mm-hmm. And I find that problematic. I, yeah. And so one thing I do like about uh, the way that our school does it and the way that New Zealand tried to do it is that they tried to create a system where kids could succeed in whatever context that they were, they were most proficient in. Meaning, if you were a kid who was a really good speaker, you could engage in assessments in a, in a range of... Uh, oral activities mm-hmm. you could instead of writing an essay you could actually produce oh, the same yeah, yeah you could produce the same evidence spoken and that was re- that was a really cool idea how it's actually um, how it's actually happened is that we don't do that <laughs> really it's, it's much easier and anyone who's spent any time in in academia like ma- marking tests or, or setting assignments knows that short answer, short form written responses are just the easiest things to get through but listening to something takes a long time. <laughs> I was going to say the way you're talking about education is mm. almost like you're catering for every single individual but that's making your task as a teacher I would suppose harder because you're yeah. not having one student only you're having a class of I mean a classroom with 25 30 students so mm. how can you basically um, nurture everybody's talent and actually um, make it happen for them or yeah. help them get there um, I'm a bit of a cynic I don't think you can <laughs> and, and, and that's that's you know somewhat somewhat controversial you can't actually cater for everyone in, in your classroom mm-hmm. um, it's impossible because uh Within within you know the, the different types of brains, the different types of thought patterns that people have are so wildly different mm-hmm. that they can't. Uh, you take thirty people and there's thirty different things going on, on inside each brain. Yeah. Some people, re- some people can, uh, yeah, l- look at something and they'll learn. They'll learn. They'll learn by mimicking. They've got you know mirror neurons in their brains that help them. They help them mimic the actions and the and the thoughts of others. But other people. Other people need uh, they need practice at it. They need to they need to manipulate something with their hands. Other yep. people need to speak it out loud. And I don't, I don't really I, I like I like there's one there's one demonstration I do with the class, which is about um, when they have to learn lines from they have to memorize lines from a book. Let's say that we're studying, mm-hmm. and let's say that you need to learn 20 quotes from this book. They all go away and they learn their quotes, and then I say to them, "How have you learned that? And like, what, what process have you done to memorize Just these quotes?" quotes yes. <laughs> yeah, and you get 20 different answers. There's not one surefire way of doing it. Yeah, and there's some really crazy ways that people learn. <laughs> people <laughs> learn and remember these things, and I'm I don't, sure. I don't, not necessarily like rote. You know, rote memory isn't necessarily learning to me, but but even just in that, you know, trying to commit something to memory, trying to memorize a formula. How do you actually do that? And one one person's strategy will be completely different to the others, and so because of that, the way that our brains are structured so differently means that, uh, yeah, it's it's very hard to actually cater for all of those different brains in front of you. Yeah, yeah, all of those different styles. Then on a on a more general level, then how mm. would you 
prepare them or do you think it's not your role, I wonder, for failure? Because I think in life we're all sooner or later, I would say, confronted with that. We might be very successful at school, an A-plus student, and mm. nevertheless be confronted with, um, I would say, unemployment or all kind of other setbacks. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you see your role as a, I would say, a, a guide or somebody who walks for a while along the pathway of a student? Yeah. So the, the kids that I, the students that I generally interact with are sort of, um, they're, they're sort of late high school in general. So you're talking 13, 14 at least, but mm -hmm. more like 15, 16. And uh, I'm always talking to them, asking them about how, what, their, what their various enjoyment of their, of their subjects is. And one thing that it's, it's a common theme with with the, the sort of STEM subjects. STEM subjects are quite nice and easy because they're they're discrete. So we're talking science, chemistry, physics, maths. You either get those right or you get them wrong, but there's no real in between. Now with the, with the, with that's the, beauty <laughs> about math. It's right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's Whereas with languages or philosophy, I think everything which is humanities, mm. you will have interpretations and viewpoints. Yeah, and absolutely. And what I find fascinating is that a lot of kids are drawn to those subjects. Now, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm generally an English teacher, and one of the lines that I parrot about English is that no matter, no matter what your thoughts are about this text, this book, this song, as long as you can back it up, you're right. As long mm. as you can justify your response, you're right. So there's right. no wrong answer. There's, no, there's not necessarily a wrong answer. The only wrong answer would be just something absurd that someone can't justify. But if you, but if you think the hidden meaning behind a Midsummer Night's Dream is, is, is this, then as long as you can provide some sort of evidence, then you're right. Now, that's not the case with the, with the STEM subjects, with, with maths. You can't... You can't... <laughs> you can't talk your way out of this it. This is my version of Pythagoras. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 you're either right or wrong. But a lot of kids are drawn to that because it's safe. Yes. Because mm -hmm. you are right, and, and there's no sort of interpretation there. And I find that, I find that interesting. What I, the other thing that I find interesting is that they're, in general, the passion for those subjects dips after it starts getting a little bit challenging <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and a lot of kids uh use use those those sort of subjects as almost almost like meditation almost like something quite quite simple and achievable and blah blah but then when you when you ask them to be creative when you ask them to be more abstract suddenly that's a that's accessing parts of their brain that is quite stressful for a lot of for a lot of people yeah We'll have a short break with some music and Richard, you chose Trains by Porcupine Tree for obviously some nostalgia which comes in that song and also the idea of time passing by. We'll talk again after the short break.
talking about the STEM uh, subjects and mm. that people tend to find them safer, a safer mm. choice than, than, let's say, literature, languages and so. Yeah. Um, can I conclude from that that basically you're adding some nuances to Ken Robinson's statement that actually it's not necessarily education but also children themselves who will go for a safer option or... Yeah. I would say subjects which have the safety net where it's you have not so many risks of tumbling down the rabbit hole and you don't know yeah. where you're going to end up. Um, yes and no. So when you say children, I think I think that statement is right about high school age kids. Mm. Those kids are those kids are after a qualification and they're after you know the best marks on their exam. And education definitely narrows down. When you go earlier than that, when you go to the five year old five-year-old kids and onwards, they're, they're different. They're, they're much more willing to explore new ideas and there won't be class protests if you, if you decide to do something strange. And they, they, really, um, they really like risk. They don't, they're not risk-averse like their teenage counterparts. How is that? How a do really, you go there? A really interesting... Do you know the Margaret Mayhew playground in, in Christchurch? Yes, <laughs> now, I now do. That, now, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant playground. And, and what I really like about that playground is the, the way that it was designed they got feedback from young kids and they said what do you want in a playground mm-hmm. they canvassed a whole, whole range of kids around Christchurch and by and large those kids wanted risk they wanted scary things they wanted high high structures that they mm-hmm. could you know throw each other off and uh, things that went fast and the council's dilemma was well how do we how do we <laughs> incorporate that without yes. violating all sorts of Health, health and safety. And, safety. <laughs> and so yeah. the way that the Margaret Mayhew playground has been designed is really successful. It's the illusion of risk. And so if you go up on the on the higher higher parts, it feels a little bit scary because you're up high, but there's no way that you can actually fall through that. There's no there's mm. never going to be any kind of incident there where a kid plummets to their to their doom. The you know, the ground is very spongy and the and the um, the things that go fast are actually done, designed in such a way that no kid's ever going to be thrown off it. Mm. And and so all all of the elements of this playground 
cater to the risk-taking sort of uh, the risk-taking ideals of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. But when you get to when you get to teenagers at school, they're no longer that. <laughs> they're no longer enamored by the idea of It's interesting risk. that you're mentioning that because yeah. obviously it seems to be something we are willing to consider for younger children. Yep. And my last podcast, I spoke to uh, Dr. Christian Walsh, who teaches mm-hmm. at the School of Business at UC, and he even is teaching about intelligent failure mm-hmm. to his students. And um, I was just wondering, um, why is it that the poor teens are... Not having that luxury. I mean, it seems to me, thinking of my own daughter who is preparing slowly NCAs and so mm. on, that there's so much weight and pressure on their shoulders. Um, they have to have a great CV, not only, I would say, having great results, but also, I would say, they have to volunteer. They have to be practically a Mother Teresa mm. outside of school, help a few kids who yeah. are in trouble, um, help, I don't know, some animals who are at risk or endangered. And, and all that is going to be yeah. part of their ability to start university or to get a grant, to get a scholarship, to be able to travel abroad. Um, is that not a bit too much, actually, to ask? 100%, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and to ask to, I would say, teens whose brain are in full, I would say, um, recon- under reconstruction, to ask them to hmm. basically perform at such a standard and it's under so much pressure. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. And, and the, there is a growing sort of expectation on, on teenagers to do all, all of this now. Um, Luckily, I think the New Zealand government is, or the, at least the education system, has listened to that and realised actually we need to pare back the amount of assessment, the amount of testing, the amount of uh, ongoing kind of pressure, because it's actually really important for kids to to thrive that they have a they have a little bit of breathing room to sort of figure things out, to actually maybe experience a subject and go I don't like that. Mm-hmm. That should actually be mark of of success, and this is this is the uh, a line that I parrot to my to my students that if you try out an area that you've never tried before, let's say chemistry, those of you who have never done sciences, go go try chemistry, and if you come out of that chemistry class or that chemistry course with a low mark or or with no mark because you because you've realised that chemistry is not your thing, I count that as as a success. I think that's a it's a really good learning outcome. It's like now you know that you don't actually like this thing. Is it because uh, you think that exploring, I would say, in the end, who you are, mm. what you like and dislike is very important to succeed? I absolutely believe that. And, and the, way that, um, the way that most schools operate, don't, uh, they, they don't allow students to actually explore very many avenues. You know, you might have, if, you, if most of your listeners think back to their schooling experiences you get a few options here and there when I was um when I was your daughter's age age 14 I, you know here here are your core subjects but you get two options and one of those options was either, either French or German <laughs> and so and so that's like the illusion of the illusion of choice I think more and more schools are opening up the range of options available and it's hard to sort of facilitate that in a way that maybe universities do but that's that's another reason why I'm teaching at the school that I am because the the options are kind of unlimited. Yep. If a kid wants to do wants to do sixteenth century Norwegian poetry studies, then they can. And that's um yeah, you don't know you don't know until you until you try it, right? And and a lot a lot of kids when it comes to the end of their schooling, they're under that academic pressure 
Mm-hmm. They have to tick those boxes. That the, the amount of risk taking, the amount of experimentation, drops quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a shame because we don't see that with young kids. They're actually willing to sort of pick Try something and up and you know play with this new thing, mm-hmm. and they and you know incorporating play in into schooling is actually you know that we, we're gradually recognising that this is this is this works really well, and yeah. that's the thing you're talking about earlier with the board games. It's like incorporating that play into into my classes has been fantastic. They can. You're yeah. just actually mentioning board games. Mm. So um, I was going to ask you. You've um, I mm. see it with my daughter as well. She's been vehemently defending the right to have board games and told me mm. how important it is and what skills she's building up. So how do you see yeah. board games? I would say as helping you in life and succeeding yeah. or failing through life. Yeah. What do board games teach you besides having a couple of hours of fun, which is already very <laughs> important, I would yeah, say, yeah. And, and socializing with friends? Yeah. How do you um, see it? Uh, I compare I compare my childhood to to the te- teens of today, and in my childhood we didn't have the internet, we didn't have online mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. Um, I love games, uh, and I think and there's some staggering statistic about the number of the number of young kids who are engaging in mobile games or computer games or whatnot. Basically, they all are. There's very very few who aren't, but it's a if they if they engage in those games on an individual basis. If they're at home on their computer or on their phone and they're sort of playing an online game with someone or against the computer, that's one thing. But to have a group of people seated around a table yeah. all engaging in the same activity is is really powerful. You learn <clears throat> excuse me, you learn so many social so many social skills from that and so many and depending on the game itself, um, you know, various abstract thinking and um, negotiation and <laughs> yeah, humor. Uh, I think I think there's something very different about uh, a group of people sitting around, sitting around, all engaging in the one activity. We don't actually get that very often. And less and, and less, I would say. Yeah, we we're that. all more and more. I would say. Um, I would say um, almost hypnotized by our mobile phones and our devices yeah, and, very and connected, but also very separate yes. and sort of isolated. And, and these, you know. You might you might have a, a community that you interact with, but they might be, you know, spread out so far around the world that that, that you don't really have that sort of common thread. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go into the neurochemical side of things, you know, the production of oxytocin, which only only happens in with eye contact. Mm-hmm. If, uh, you have to look at look at someone in the, in the <laughs> eye for you to feel some sort of connection with them, and that's you know we know that we know that that's. Um, that face-to-face contact is, is super important. So therefore, taking all that into account, that's why I feel really comfortable in like facilitating a group, a group of you know ten, twelve kids around the table, all screaming at each other in a very safe kind of respectful, mm-hmm. but also <laughs> pseudo-hostile way. I think I yep. think it's great. I think you don't know someone until you've actually had a good, safe argument with them. Yep, <laughs> a disagreement on something, but that's still. You know, we don't hate each other here. We're we're actually just coming to a yeah. And so the the sort of the sort of games that I that I encourage kids to play are always those sort of social socially geared games. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to thank you, Richard, because yeah. if we've learned a couple of few interesting things, I think you've just highlighted the importance actually to get to know yourself by exploring ways or things mm. you don't know. 
uh, again, a different aspect we're learning about failure, but also about success. You might try things out, they might not work, but at least you've learned a lesson, you know, that's not something for me, I have to explore something different. Mm -hmm. Another interesting part you've just mentioned and highlighted, I like the idea of play. So learning through play and board games, the fact that um, we learn social skills, it creates happiness, but we also learn to listen to one another, we learn to argue with one another and disagree in a safe space, which I also think is very important mm -hmm. nowadays when we look at how people seem to be more and more entrenched in their own way and pattern of thinking without being able anymore mm. to build bridges. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a fabulous week. Next time, I'll welcome Professor Dr. Gillian Lawson, Head of School of the School of Lands uh, Landscape Architecture at Lincoln University. Thank you very much. And Thank you very much, Jenny. See you next time.